Hello, this is Philippe Albuquerque, and welcome to the next in the series of Editor-in-Chief podcasts for the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. At the outset, I'd like to read a word from our sponsors. Rapid Medical pioneers the only responsive neurovascular devices for greater control of procedural success. Now with best-in-class deliverability, the Tiger Retriever 17 adjustable clot retriever provides the lowest delivery forces across 3mm devices. Combined with the unique ability to reduce the device during retrieval, why choose between safety and efficacy when you can achieve both? I'm delighted to welcome Miriam Carantz and Charlotte Michaelcheck from the Department of Radiology at the Mayo Clinic. And I should mention again, this manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will be appearing in a uh, upcoming issue of the JNIS. Miriam and Charlotte, welcome and thank you again for taking your time today to discuss this important manuscript. Thank you for having us. So at the outset, I found this manuscript intriguing. It, I think it really builds upon some of the initiative in the JNIS and certainly within the SNIS in understanding better gender disparities in neurointerventional therapy. I wanted to discuss with you at the outset, what was the impetus for creating this trial? What, what did you see was, was lacking in the current literature? So there's literature present on the gender disparity in various specialties of compensation, leadership, and professional opportunity. But we noticed that in the field of interventional neuroradiology, there was not a study that examined compensation from private industry funding. So we noticed that gap there and wanted to fill it. It's interesting that um, you chose to focus a bit on, on the industry funding. In terms of governmental funding as well, uh, what disparities did you, did you find? So uh, kind of across the board, and Miriam can speak more to this as well, but women were compensated less. Um, in terms of conjuring um, a professional picture uh, kind of holistically of what goes into an individual success in the field, I think that um, industry funding, as Miriam touched on, has been kind of overlooked as a source of um, compensation and um uh, you know, kind of as an assist professionally, but it, it followed the same trend, generally speaking, um, as industry funding, government funding, that is. Can you tell me a little bit about how you went about conducting this study? The database, I know that you went through the SNIS um, numbers and database as well, but can you tell me a little bit about what the sources were for this analysis? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you mentioned, the Society of Neurointerventional Radiologists, uh, so they have the list of all the professionals um, who are in the field, who are active in the field right now. So we got the names from there. And then uh, regarding the funding information, we went on a publicly available website. Uh, it's called the Center 
for Medicare and Medicaid services open payments website. And so all the information is available there regarding funding for research, uh, consulting, um, entertainment, and various other purposes. Discuss a little bit uh, about the statistical methods that you used. I, I should say that overall, the results comprised 893 interventional neuroradiologists, of which 8.2% were female, the rest obviously were male, and then the compensation was pretty drastically different between the two 49,000 in mean annual payments reported, and of those, only 5,847 went to women. Can you discuss this a little bit more? Absolutely. Yeah, I know I, uh, I I did some of that statistical work. It was a bit tricky rifling through the masses because we had to account for the fact that women comprise such a small proportion um, of the population. But we did the Kruskal-Wallis tests looking at um, annual compensation by gender, state of practice, positional rank. And the reason we decided to do that was because compensation and reimbursement data, um, there wasn't any homogeneity of variance for that. And so when we ran those kind of preliminary tests looking at the statistical patterns, we, we landed on that test. But you're right. I mean, the results are kind of drastic. Um, I can't yeah. say unexpected, but that's kind of a gestalt from just um, even crunching the numbers. Uh, so when we saw the outcome, I think we were... Um, it, it was within expected, but it, but it was certainly surprising and, and disappointing. Sure. You also discussed the the H index. What made you pursue that, and and how were you able to determine those numbers? So we just did um, independent sample t tests, looking at that because we were just comparing H indices between um, genders. I would say that that as um, you know, someone in the medical field and in and around people who are publishing and working in research um, as an adjunct to their clinical careers, age indices matter quite a bit. And they're looked up kind of routinely and regularly when looking at kind of, uh, you know, professional gravitas and worth. And they're not always frequently included in these studies in terms of, uh, you know, comparing compensation and opportunity. Um, I think we kind of wanted to bring age indices into that conversation because they do matter in real time. Sure. Absolutely. In terms of promotion in academic departments, it's certainly a, a key factor. One of the lines in your introduction that I found intriguing and somewhat disheartening. You you write, it has been found that sex discordance between surgeons and patients is associated with worse outcomes following common procedures. What what exactly are you talking about here? Can you elucidate this this line a little bit more? Yeah. And then I'll, I'll certainly let Miriam go and I don't want to hop in too often. But there are numerous studies that look at not only patient outcome, but also patient reported outcome, of course, following interactions with surgeons and practitioners who are of either um, opposite or different gender uh, than themselves or of the same gender that they identify as. And 
typically the pattern that is seen is that women who have male surgeons, um, individuals who identify as women who have individuals who identify as male surgeons, tend to not only report worse outcomes, but have worse outcomes even for routine or otherwise basic procedures. And I think this can go into a much broader and wider discussion about the history of kind of how doctors, practitioners, and otherwise treat their patients in terms of believability. You know, there's there's a lot of studies coming out now about um, female maternal mortality and um, physician believability and women reporting pain and that pain kind of being dismissed. But I think that that was something we wanted to bring in because it is an important thing to examine when we look at the lack of representation that is, of course, driven by the lack of opportunity. Absolutely. Um, And you do mention in your discussions that studies examining underrepresentation of women in radiology, anesthesia, gastroenterology, ophthalmology, and you mentioned a number of other subspecialties. I mean, this seems to be a problem really across the board in terms of medical specialties. We think about neurointervention, and I think historically it has been a field in which women uh, tend not to pursue neurointervention for a number of different reasons that I think now are going by the wayside, some of them being radiation exposure and problems uh, and issues concerning concerning pregnancy. So uh, I was surprised in your discussion that you do mention that this is this is an issue across all uh, virtually every every medical subspecialty. Can you comment on that a bit? So um, in the studies that we cited and we read, uh, we did find you know gender disparities in compensation across various specialties. And this is also a representative of, I guess, the greater ecosystem in the U.S. of uh, women physicians getting paid less uh, than male physicians. And, you know, it, it matters because I, we think that increased diversity allows for a more innovative and productive and egalitarian um, environment. So this lack of uh, equity definitely affects the research and the patient care. Absolutely. Another finding that I found was intriguing. You you mentioned the phenomenon dubbed as the second shift uh, that was coined to uh, represent the disproportionality that women may have in terms of um, household responsibilities, so to speak. How do you see this, Charlotte, as an issue that can be mitigated in the future? What needs to change, not specifically within neurointervention, but across medical subspecialties as a whole? <laughs> that is, is, is such a broad-reaching question and, and certainly an important one. I think the second shift uh, was originally described by kind of behavioral psychologists as this, the, the phenomenon of women um, having to whether or not they have children and or extended families having to deal in the chores, so to speak, of of daily life more so than men and just having that expectation thrust upon them, no matter their circumstances, you know, with children, with partner or otherwise. 
you know, I think that really delves into just changing gender roles and norms and expectations across the board, um, just to the best of our ability, fostering a society in which the success of women is celebrated and not seen as uh, a series of impossible compromises and creating a space for women where we can kind of enjoy the fruits of our labor uh, without having to bear this kind of societally um, imposed guilt about what our role should and could uh, look like. (laughs) Well, Thank you, Charlotte, for tackling what I what I realized was just a huge, uh, huge topic, uh, societal topic, and I think you you eloquently address that. Just to kind of wrap things up a bit, so overall, your your findings indicate that in the field of interventional neuroradiology, females receive less research funding and private industry compensation, have lower H indexes and are less likely to occupy the highest academic positions. So this research really focused on the database from 2019. Uh, I'm curious uh, what you and Miriam think should be the next step in terms of continuing to analyze this problem. Certainly within the SNIS and even within the JNIS, uh, we continue to strive for diversity and and inclusion. And this, I I believe, is a major issue. So what's next in terms of the analysis of of this situation? Yeah, uh, so uh, the the goal of this paper was kind of to start the discussion and uh, encourage finding the the underlying causes, whether they be structural, you know, cultural, um, that are contributing to the disparities. And hopefully, you know, the disparity will decrease and we can close the gap in the future. And it's really important to continue to track the disparity um, to hopefully see it decline. You know, from the perspective of what the institutions can do, I think having more uh, women in leadership positions, you know, can help uh, younger physicians progress as well. So mentorship does matter. I know there are some initiatives of, you know, the American Association for Women Radiologists uh, funded the Women in Neuroradiology Leadership Award in 2012. So having initiatives like that that really um, empower women to pursue leadership positions uh, would be a possible avenue. Yeah, certainly I think mentorship plays uh, a huge role. And as we continue to build the number of women within our field, hopefully that is, that is an issue that uh, will be addressed. I wanted to thank you both again for this interesting manuscript entitled Gender Disparities in Industry Compensation and Research Payments Among Neurointerventional Surgeons in the USA. Uh, Again, as I mentioned, this is currently on the JNIS website and will appear shortly in a print issue of the JNIS. So thank you very much, Miriam and and Charlotte, for your time today and continue this uh, excellent work. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much.